Now Captain Kirk is going to have a complete demonstration. I want there to be no doubts whatsoever in his mind. Bridge to all decks. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And Scott, not only am I excited to talk about Dagger of the Mind, but last week when we did What Are Little Girls Made Of, we asked a question about whether or not Corby had intimate relations with Andrea. And we got some incredible comments on Facebook, including from Stephen Liverman, who says, I never saw Andrea as a sex partner then because he treated her like a machine, but it makes sense. The idea that Andre was a human associate of Corby upgraded, I never imagined, but that makes sense too. Uh, Dalen Shannon said, oh yes, he definitely did. My question is, was there an original Andrea? We see androids being made from actual humans, so where did Andrea come from? Creepy thought. What if Andre was a real person who had a platonic relationship with Dr. Corby, but when her android was created, he programmed her to be responsive to his needs? That is indeed a very creepy comment, Dalen. Well, I got to say, too, you know, all, along those lines, like when Kirk and Chapel were, were down on XO3, Chapel knew who Brown was, but she didn't know who Andrea was. So does that mean that Andrea didn't exist or that, that she just didn't know that she was part of the expedition? But it just opens up so many questions. And whether or not uh, the producers, you know, Roddenberry had that in mind, the fact that so many people went there either on their own or because we posted it on our Facebook page, which is Enterprise Incidents. Check it out and like our page. This is really great that so many people were open to the idea that there's always more, so much more to Star Trek than what we actually see. And that's what makes this episode, this this series, episode by episode, so very great. And there was another comment, Steve, that I, that I read. Uh, maybe you're going to bring this one up. When... Kirk is hanging on the ledge at the end of the third act and Ruck saves Kirk from hanging there. I was surprised that someone else brought this up and we did not talk about yes. this. Being the huge Blade Runner fans that we are and seeing how much uh, we think that What Are Little Girls Made Of kind of inspired Blade Runner, that it kind of mirrored the scene where – Roy Batty saves Deckard at the end of Blade Runner. Roy Deckard is hanging there just like Kirk. And Roy Batty, he achieves human consciousness at his last final moment and saves Deckard just like Ruck achieves human consciousness and, and saves Kirk. That was a great bookend that I never thought about. Steve, you never thought about either, but this guy did. I can't believe what you and I didn't think of that one. <laughs> I know, I'm really shocked. Ed Hosschetter said, as a kid that never crossed my mind after listening to this episode, Steve, you convinced me. Well, I feel like my work is done. <laughs> and John Francisco writes, Corby's denials when Christine confronts him are akin to the cheating husband remark, it's only sex these women mean nothing to me. It's you I love. He never really does deny he's had sex with her, only that she's incapable of love, and therefore he feels nothing for her. But that's not really the question being asked, is it? John, I think that is a excellent, excellent point. I love the way you said it. But Scott, what is this other comment we got on YouTube? Okay, so, you know, we have our pages on, on iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts, and we also have 
the audio on YouTube. I mean, obviously we don't have video for it, but you can listen to the audio on YouTube. And one very, very, very special, special person who is now apparently a fan of Enterprise Incidents. This is what this person said, and I'm going to tell you who it is. Ladies and gentlemen, it is going to blow your mind just like it blew mine. And the quote is, Hi, Scott. It has taken a little time. I recently discovered Enterprise Incidents on YouTube. Today was the first time I've had time to watch a whole episode. I think I'm hooked. Very interesting show. And I think Corby and Andrea had a relationship, not a romantic one, strictly a physical one, especially on her part. It was the second time she was embraced by Kirk when he was very passionate to reach her on a more intense personal level. That emotional feelings, human feelings were implanted in her. That was when her feelings for Corby began to change when feeling of human love were born and continued to grow. All right. Do you know who that comment came from? This this comment came from the director of six credited episodes of the original series, including a seventh that he did not get credit for. This, this director is Ralph Sinensky. Ralph Sinensky commented on our YouTube page for Enterprise Incidents. And let me tell you something about Ralph Sinensky. He, the six episodes that he was credited for directing, two of them in particular are among the very finest episodes of Star Trek over 55 years. This side of paradise and my personal favorite Star Trek episode of all time, which is Metamorphosis. And the fact that that Ralph Sinetsky, who is, by the way, he's 98 years old. He just had his 98th birthday and he is, he is really with it and he is sharper and smarter than people, you know, a third of his age, that he had such a keen insight into what a little girl's made of. I, I really hope that he joins us on Enterprise Incidents when we talk about his first episode, This Side of Paradise. So thank you, Ralph Sinetsky, for listening. Oh, my God, Scott, that comment is amazing. But you know what? All of your comments are amazing. We love hearing from you. And that is why it's so important for you, if you haven't already, to like our Facebook page. Who knows? You might even get your comment read on the air. But right now, we are not here to talk what little girls are made of because we are about to enter the dagger of the mind. Dagger of the mind, Steve. That is the next episode on our Enterprise Incidents podcast. We are going episode by episode in production order on the original Star Trek series, the very best Star Trek series of them all, which is celebrating its 55th anniversary this year, 2021, as this recording is taking place. And Dagger of the Mine is an episode that sticks out for me because it is so intense. I just remember being really young and just the neural neutralizer, like like watching Captain Kirk get tortured by Dr. Adams and watching Simon Van Gelder on the Enterprise. Like he was just fighting so hard to, to talk and say who his name was. And because of the intensity of this episode, I have to say, Steve, that while I like this episode and while I appreciate Dagger of the Mine, this is also an episode that I've found hard to watch because of just the level of torture that is inflicted on Van Gelder, the level of torture that is inflicted on Captain Kirk. It's, it was really hard for me to see these people 
in so much pain. It's, it's so interesting thinking about it because I feel the same way. I've always thought this was a good, but not necessarily a great episode. And it's interesting to me now, having gone through these first several episodes, how many episodes we've done that have an element that kind of freaks me out. Whether it's, you know, Vina going back in with the Telosians, whether it's, and, and the torture that's in the cage, whether it's the death of Gary Mitchell and Dr. Daner, Charlie X saying, I want to stay as he, that freaks me out. And now we're at another where I picture that light of the neural neutralizer staring at us. Yeah. Man, yeah. that freaks me out. It so, does yeah, freak the, me out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, freaks so yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting how Star Trek, and again, I go back to 1966 and Bonanza and Gilligan's Island and Dragnet and all these shows and like, there's nothing like this on television, except maybe Twilight Zone and Outer, Outer Limits. Those are the only things that it kind of have elements like this. Yeah, but the difference with Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, those were anthology shows. They didn't have the same characters on week after week. And to say that this episode freaked you out, I think that this is an episode that has freaked me out, so to speak, more than any other episode wow. because because of that ear-piercing sound that the neural mm. neutralizer makes. Because uh, especially when you're seeing Captain Kirk in the chair and he tries to reach out to the Enterprise and Van Gelder turns up the volume yeah. and he's like, Kirk to Enterprise. I mean, it is so hard to watch your hero suffer in so much pain, but whether it's 1966 or 2021, Dagger of the Mind is a powerful episode by any measure. And it is an episode that I think holds up. It is, it is not just for the reasons that we just stated, but, but for so many other reasons that we will get into. And before we get into it, for everybody who's been listening to Enterprise Incident so far, First of all, Steve and I would like to thank you very, very much and uh, hope you're enjoying it. Hope you will continue to listen as future episodes come down the line. We also want to say, because this is important, that if you are listening to our podcast on iTunes, please be sure to give us your best possible review and make sure to share this podcast with your friends, whether they're diehard Star Trek fans or casual Star Trek fans, or they're getting into Star Trek for the very first time because of this anniversary. Make sure if you are listening to the audio version of Enterprise Incidents on YouTube, head over to iTunes and rate us, review us, give us that five-star rating because those reviews will help us stand out so more people can discover Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. Did I get all that right, my friend? You absolutely did, and you said it beautifully. This is where the community of Star Trek fans can really help us out. But let's get into some of the stats here for Dagger of the Mind. So the episode was written by Shimon Winselberg. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, that's not the name that we see on the screen at the end of the episode. Well, that's because Shimon Winselberg used an alias, and we'll get to the reasons why. But the credit that was used is S. Bar David. Now, hold that thought while I continue okay. on with some of these stats here. So the episode was directed by Vincent McAviti, who directed, Steve, our favorite episode so far of Star Trek, which is Balance of Terror. 
Wow. Now, while the episode was the 11th to film, it was the ninth episode to air on NBC TV on November 3rd, 1966, my dad's birthday. It was filmed between August 9th and August 17th, 1966. It took a total of six and a half production days. So it went one half day over schedule. The cost of the episode was $182,140, which brought it $11,360 under the first season per episode budget of $193,500. Now, Steve, if you're listening to Dagger of the Mind, if you're listening to the music and you're saying, oh, that music cue is from Where No Man Has Gone Before. (laughs) That music cue is from The Enemy Within. Well, that is because for the first time since Star Trek had been produced, Dagger of the Mind is the first episode in which no new music was scored. All of the music you hear in Dagger of the Mind came from other episodes. It's so funny you say that because there's at least four times my notes where the note is, ask Scott where that music came from. Because I kept going like, I know I've heard that one before. I know I heard that one before. I can't believe that it's all reused music. Yeah, it's all reused music. And the funny thing is, it's like, like as these episodes have gone on, you know, there, there are definitely episodes that are coming up where they had new music scored. I th- most of the time they, they scored the, uh, the first few, I would say the first maybe – 10 to 12 episodes in each season before they kind of like maxed out their their music budget. Then they started repurposing music from other episodes. But the funny you thing is you like you're, you're, you're watching an episode like this going like, oh, that's, you know, you're, you're thinking of where the music originated. You know, one of the things that I was just thinking about, so I'm a, I'm a film editor and I've worked in documentaries and features and a whole bunch of other stuff. And one of the things I love doing is editing music. And what I just occurred to me that I'm really curious about. So when you edit music, sometimes you take a, cue and you throw it at a piece of film and go, oh, does this work? And you go, no, that doesn't. You try a different one. So they had this bunch of different cues that grew over time that they would reuse and repurpose. One of the ways you can do that is if you have what's called stems. And what stems are is if when you recorded, you could record the whole orchestra and you have the whole thing, but they also might've recorded just the drums, just the rhythm section for this, or just the strings for this. And I wonder if they repurposed pieces, just one piece of the instrumentation in different ways or different versions. I, it, would, it would give them a lot more flexibility as they're reusing the old music over and over again. Well, you know, one of the things that I've loved doing as we've been recording every episode of Enterprise Incidents is trying to find the ways in which this brand new episode that we're doing our recording for has represented a first for Star Trek. Right. So, Steve... Yes. Dagger of the Mind has a pretty big first for Star Trek. Can you guess what it is? I have a guess. My guess is, I'm not sure if it might be something else, but my guess is this is the first title from Shakespeare. Okay. Well, that, that actually is a really good guess. Not where I was going, but that is absolutely true. This actually is the first Star Trek episode to be to be titled after a quote from Shakespeare. This one coming from Macbeth. Is this a dagger which I see before me? A dagger of the mind, a false creation. And there were many, many more episodes named after quotes from Shakespeare. By but- any other name, The Conscience of the King. 
By the way, you know what I hear every time I hear, is this a dagger that I see before thee? I hear Robin Williams doing it as John Wayne in Dead Poet Society. You can also imagine maybe John Wayne is Macbeth going, well, is this a dagger I see before me? Uh, so the first wait, 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 was, hold on. I have another first. Okay, I have another guess it. about the first. Okay. Is this the first non-Yeoman Rand love interest? Okay, another first. <laughs> another first. But not, not the one you Okay, where yeah. were you going? Where were you okay. going? Okay, we'll get into the whole Yeoman Rand yeah. thing because there's a mighty big story here about that. But Dagger of the Mine is the first appearance of the Vulcan Mind Meld. Of course. Of course it is. I should have guessed that first. I cannot believe you didn't, but I am floored by the get by the firsts that you did guess because <laughs> you are correct. Both of those are firsts. And uh, wow. Uh, yes, a very, very landmark episode because of the fact that it is the first time we see the Vulcan Mind Meld. And I can't wait to tell you the story of how the Vulcan Mind Meld came about. But the writer of this episode, Shimon Winselberg, he wrote for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He actually wrote the pilot episode for Lost in Space. Wow. So Erwin Allen owes so much of the look and the feel of that show to Shimon Winselberg because he wrote the pilot. And he also wrote 22 episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel – where Gene Roddenberry wrote mm. 24 episodes. So they uh, definitely did work on the same show, maybe not at the same time. But this is an episode, I again, I think it's very good. I think it just maintains high tension and high drama. I have to say the performances across the board, particularly from William Shatner and James Gregory, and especially Morgan Woodward, whose performance is so intense and disturbing. So, you know, here's the thing about, about you know, again, because this is we're, – we're going in production order. So Dagger of the Mine followed What Are Little Girls Made Of? So for the second time in two episodes, you're kind of dealing with sort of a mad scientist type. Right. You know what and, I mean? Yep. And, and a technology that's dangerous. But the, the, the big distinction, I think, is that one of them is genuinely a bad guy and one of them is a – misunderstood, complicated, misguided guy. Yeah. And that, yeah. Is, that is a different thing. Um, Scott, this is mid-August 1966. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world at that time? I, I'm guessing there was a lot going on in the world at that time it's because it was 60s. 60s. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one is on August 10th, the U.S. Department of Treasury announced that it was no longer going to print the $2 bill. Wow. And can I say just really quickly, the $2 bill has a really important place in my family's history, What's which that? is that the $2 bill was what my grandfather gave you for special occasions. So whether it was your birthday or it was a holiday or it was, you know, we're both Jewish. So searching for the Afikoman, you found a piece, you got a $2 bill. Oh, and my wow. dad <laughs> always carried $2 bills with him and would hand them out to people because he would always get a good reaction. And sitting in my dresser, I have a, a whole stack of $2 bills. $2 I, I bills haven't seen a, I, I haven't touched. I haven't seen a $2 bill in a long time, but but man, I, I, I do remember what it looks like, and I, I kind of miss it. <laughs> yeah. 
On the same day, the Lunar Orbiter was launched from Cape Canaveral. This is the first spacecraft to orbit the moon to take pictures of the dark side of the moon and of lunar landing sites. The, you know, last time in our last episodes, you brought up the fact that John Lennon had said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Well, <laughs> on August 11th, he took it back. He said he apologized. He said the wrong thing. He, it's, you know, it's pretty rare to get John Lennon to mea culpa, but in this case, he did. Oh, oh well, well, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the video sure. uh, yeah, of it. that press conference in Chicago. John Lennon, you know, like here, here's this comment that he made to a magazine that that came out like like earlier in the spring, and and this quote that the, we're more popular than Jesus now was making the rounds to the point where. The Bible Belt, where they were having bonfires to burn Beatles memorabilia and burn their albums. And under pressure and duress, John Lennon more or less apologized. And, uh, you know, watching him sweat and watching all four of those guys have to suffer through that was that was one of the other reasons why they decided to stop touring at the end of the month. But uh, uh, I'm sure you can find that video on YouTube. Uh, it's very interesting to watch. I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong. And now it's all this. On August 16th, the House Un-American Activities Committee began investigating Americans protesting the Vietnam War. They were looking for communist instigators into the peace protest against the war, which I think is it's just, you know, man, the the history that's going on in this moment and where that places Star Trek in context is really interesting. And of course, in sports, Willie Mays hit his 535th home run, moving him into second place behind Babe Ruth 714. W- Willie Mays finished his career with 660. And as a San Francisco kid, and my dad being a huge, huge Giants fan, this was a big, big deal. That is amazing. Wow, what a week. Uh, like, like you're, imagine you're William Shatner and you're driving to the Desilu lot in the morning at like, you know, probably like 5 a.m. and listening to all this news. That must have been really, really cool. So- So this is what's interesting about Dagger of the Mind. This is another thing. Like we talked about how it's the first time we saw, well, like you pointed out, Kirk's love interest and a a Shakespearean title and especially the Vulcan uh, mind meld. But this is also the last episode in which Gene Roddenberry's name was featured in the end credits as Hmm. the sole producer of Star Trek. Oh, wow. Because after – producing these first 10 or 11 episodes, including The Cage, and also rewriting all these other writers extensively, including the writer of Dagger of the Mind, Gene Roddenberry was exhausted. And another producer was brought on to handle the day-to-day production. And that producer, his name is Gene Kuhn. And when we get into those episodes that Gene Kuhn has produced, which we will get into in future episodes of Enterprise Incidents, I'm telling you, Steve, if you love Star Trek at the very beginning, you love it even more as the series went on because of the changes and the additions and the developments and the refinement of the Kirk, Spock, McCoy relationship. All that was Gene Kuhn, but Gene Roddenberry's last episode 
Well, he sure did rewrite this guy a whole lot. So Shyman Witzelberg's first story outline came around in mid-March of 1966. His fourth revised story outline came across on May 9th. So his second draft teleplay happened on June 23rd. John D.F. Black, who was kind of at this point in Star Trek, had one foot out the door because he he and Roddenberry had a falling out over Roddenberry rewriting The Naked Time. But John D.F. Black did a script polish dated July 6th. Gene Roddenberry did not one, not two, but three rewrites. And that third rewrite was dated July 22nd, 1966. And it was because of all these rewrites that Shyman Winselberg was so unhappy about how he had been rewritten over and over again that he took his name off the script, off the story, and used his pseudonym, which is S. Bar David, which is the equivalent, and I'm sure you know this, of Alan Smithy. That is so interesting. It, it, it Listen, having been rewritten on a show, it's not that fun, you know? It's, and there was, it's funny, it's happened to me a couple times. And one time I, I went, I read it and I went, oh, I understand why they had to do this. I don't like it, but I understand it. And one time I read it and went, what the hell is this? Just <laughs> horrible. Before we go any further with Dagger of the Mind, okay, Steve, I, I just completely forgot to mention something so important, so fundamentally important to Star Trek that happened during the making of Dagger of the Mind that not only had an impact of Dagger on the Mind, not only every episode of the original series, but even every episode of the animated series. Can you guess what landmark single moment happened during the filming of Dagger of the Mind? Didn't directly affect Dagger of the Mind, but it kind of did, as well as every other episode and every episode of the animated series. What a buildup, Steve. Can you guess what I'm getting at here? I'm I'm trying to think, particularly the animated series is throwing me. I'm like, is there a specific piece of music or is there a... like I know, like James Dewan does a t- bunch of different voices in the animated series. Does he do another voice in here? I I don't know. Okay, well, 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 you actually said something that was on the right track mm. when it came to the music because something was added to a specific music piece that came to define Star Trek to this very day. I'm just going to tell you what it is, yeah. And when you hear what it is, you and everyone listening, you're all going to go. Whoa, that (laughs) happened while they were filming Dagger of the Mind. Okay, it was during the filming of Dagger on the Mind that William Shatner recorded the narration for the opening theme. He recorded the narration for Space, the Final Frontier. Like to this day, when I am watching Star Trek, every single time, when you get past the first teaser, that first teaser, which we have already established, is always like, Super, super awesome. And then you get to the music, you know, the pings, and then you hear William Shatner's voice with the reverb, space, the final frontier, and then I mean, it still gives me goosebumps. Doesn't it still get to you too? Every single time. Every single time I like it. Every single time, right? Every single time you just go, oh God, I love Star Trek. I'm so glad you told me this. And you know what's weird is it makes perfect sense that this is where they recorded it because- 
in so many of the early episodes in the cage and where no man's gone before, it's very vague what the Starship Enterprise does. And it, it took a few episodes. You know, at one point they're delivering chili peppers. You know, there's a lot of weird, <laughs> weird stuff going on. And it's very vague what's happening. And yet once they started to lock it in, then that's when, of course, they could record this opening because that's when they say what the mission is to explore strange new worlds, seek out new life, new civilizations like that. And of course, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I mean, that is you. They couldn't have come up with that writing when they were doing where no man has gone before. And it was a, it was a true collaboration to come up with that opening narration. John D.F. Black, who was crucial to the writing of that narration speech, the original draft that Gene Roddenberry took a pass on on August 2nd of 1966 actually said the following. So compare this to the finished version. This is the story of the United Spaceship Enterprise assigned a five-year patrol of our galaxy. The giant starship visits Earth colonies, regulates commerce, and explores strange new worlds and civilizations. These are its voyages and its adventures. That was... Roddenberry's first pass. So then John D.F. Black, that very same day on August 2nd, took a pass of his own that read, and this is crucial, Steve, it actually starts with the words, space, the final frontier. So John D.F. Black came up with those words, Mm. space, the final frontier. Endless, silent, waiting. This is the story of the United Spaceship Enterprise its mission, a five-year patrol of the galaxy to seek out and contact all alien life, to explore, to travel the vast galaxy where no man has gone before, a Star Trek. <laughs> so John D.F. Black put the words Star Trek in the narration. So after Bob Justman did his own revised version of that, and then Gene Rodbury took a final pass, that is the version that we have come to know and love for the past 55 years. That opening narration, you don't see Captain Kirk, but you certainly hear him. And it's during that narration that William Shatner truly became Captain Kirk. (laughs) Now, the moment he recorded, so they're in the middle of filming scenes on the bridge on the second day of filming Dagger of the Mind. During that afternoon, William Shatner was told to go across the lot to the sound mixing booth on the Desilu lot. So he was driven across the lot in a cart. And Bob Justman and John Dia Black were on site waiting for him. Now, according to legend, Shatner did it in one take. That's kind of true. And it's like okay. uh, it's like that movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when the legend right. becomes fact. Right. Print the legend. Yeah. But in actuality at least according to John D. Black, it took Shatner two takes because while he did nail the first take, there was a bump in the recording. So he had to do a second take. And after that second take, it was Bob Justman who told the sound mixer to kind of pump up Shatner's voice a little bit. So the sound mixer added some reverb mm-hmm. and the rest, as they say, is Star Trek history. Space. Wow. The final frontier. Like you can just hear it in your head, right? <laughs> what, what, one thing that's interesting about it is that 
I, and I know this is a small thing. Well, it isn't a small thing. It's a really important thing is people always have the impression when they look at, you know, works of art from the outside that the person creating it, it all just came fully formed and almost nothing does is that it took a couple of tries. And most of, uh, there's a, a famous book on writing called bird by bird. And I will not say exactly what the title of the first chapter is, but it's, uh, cause it has a bad word in it, but it's S word first drafts is the first chapter of that book. <laughs> and it is what it's basically saying is all of our first drafts are terrible. And just accept it, including great writers, including Gene Roddenberry. That first draft of that speech is terrible. Yes, it is. <laughs> and then, but that's the that's you have to get out that first draft. And then and this is also why collaborators are so important is a little bit from here and a little bit from there and a performance from Shatner and you up the reverb and then you and you have the great music and then you have magic. You and know? you know what? You know what else it is, Steve? It is absolutely Shatner. Because mm-hmm. nobody does, as we all know, nobody does dramatic pauses better than William Shatner with his with his Shakespearean training. Gets came into such such perfect effect with the recording of that opening narration, and and he just like knocked it out of the park. Yes, in one take, but it was the second take that was used because it had to be. And, uh, you know, it happened during the making of Dagger of the Mind, which is why we were talking about it here. Um, shall we, do, would you like to enter into Dagger of the Mind? Uh, I, 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 I enter into it with you, Steve, with caution, because <laughs> I know where we're going with this episode. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it and why, specifically why here I was, you know, a little kid disturbed by this episode. And here I am as a grown man, still kind of disturbed by this episode. And I, but I don't know why. So I'm looking forward to that part of the conversation, too. Well, we start in the transporter room, not with any of our major characters, but with two technicians who are beaming down a big cylinder that says infrasensory drugs for the penal colony. And they try to beat it down. Doesn't work. Why didn't it work? (laughs) In comes Captain Kirk and the guy in the red shirt whose name I don't have, but maybe you do. Berkeley. Thank Mr. you. Berkeley. I should remember that because that is my alma mater is Berkeley. <laughs> um, and Kirk says having trouble. and I just don't understand the problem, sir. You're beaming cargo down to a penal colony, Mr. Berkeley. They're security force field, sir. It's a great way of handling exposition because the exposition we need to get out is that there's this force field that has to be let down in order to beam stuff off. But to do it with a character that is making a mistake and is corrected by the captain adds some character to it. When we see... The transporter room, we see these technicians. We don't know these guys. You know, you you just remembered Berkeley's name. But it was supposed to be Scotty. Scotty was Mm. supposed to be in the transporter room scene. But because that was the only scene for which Scotty was called for in this episode, and since they would have had to pay him his his per episode rate of $850, they took Scotty out and put Mr. Berkeley in. So they didn't have to pay, you know, James Dewan's full fee. The other thing that's interesting is that so so they're in orbit around uh, uh, Tantalus Five. So one thing that Winselberg did, the, the the writer, is he put a lot of references to Greek mythology in his in his story, starting with Tantalus. Tantalus was a former king imprisoned for various evil deeds, and he was forever chin deep in water. And fruit-laden branches hung within easy reach, but out of reach. So, so that's for starters. 
It's interesting that you would put the penal colony, which is supposed to be so kind and so not brutal, and you give it the name of something that is basically torture. Um, <laughs> we call down to the penal colony. We They lower the force field. We beam this thing down, and then we find out they have something to beam up, and it's a big box, and it's sitting there on the transporter platform, and Kirk, I love, he says, Oh, Mr. Berkeley, you might re-familiarize yourself with the manual on penal colony procedures. Immediately, sir. And we're looking at this box, and the box opens up, and just this crazy-faced man with, like, a oxygen mask comes out, and there is Morgan Woodward. Man, he is amazing in this episode. He is phenomenal in this episode. Now, when I started watching Star Trek as a kid, I, th I think I told you in a previous episode, uh, the first episode that I saw was Mirror, Mirror, and they were going in production order. So they were in the second season when I got into the show. So the first episode that I ever uh. saw that had Morgan Woodward in it was the Omega Glory. And when they went back and started the series over again in the first season and I got to Dagger of the Mine, I went, oh, that's the guy from the Omega Glory. He was Captain Tracy in which he also gave a spectacular performance. And Morgan Woodward is one of those character actors who was always, always always working. Uh, he played Boss Godfrey in the uh, uh, Paul Newman cinematic classic Cool Hand Luke. He's the no-eyes boss. That's right. He always wore the shades. Uh, he always played villains. He was in eight episodes of Bonanza, 12 episodes of Wagon Train, 20 episodes of Gunsmoke, but even into the 80s, Steve, Morgan Woodward was an in-demand and regularly employed actor appearing on Hill Street Blues, The A-Team. He was on 55 episodes of Dallas wow. as Punk Anderson. And see, with all of that history, with all of that legacy, he claimed, Morgan Woodward claimed that Van Gelder was the most physically and emotionally exhausting role he ever had. And after watching Dagger of the Mine, it'd be hard to uh, prove him wrong. I'm not surprised at all. You know what's so funny? It's so funny. You and I, same age, watching Star Trek at the exact same time, mm. and you were paying attention to things that I totally wasn't. I had no idea what production order was or even that there was an order. It was just I came <laughs> home and there was a Star Trek episode. And I kind of knew that some episodes were, oh, those were clearly later and some were clearly earlier. But I didn't know that. I don't think I noticed that was the same actor until I was in high school. Oh, like wow, it just Because wow. it was just Star Trek. It just was all kind of flowing by me. And he comes out of the box looking absolutely crazed, sneaks up behind the transported technician, hits him in the back, knocking him out, and peeks out the door into the corridor and sees it is crowded. And we are left with the camera just pushing in on the, his profile and his bright blue eyes just absolutely insane. And that is the end of our teaser. You know, Scott, you're right about Star Trek knowing how to nail a teaser. Oh, like, my God. It, you know, when you watch the original series... Like even the weakest teasers were still better than the teasers that we would see in every other Star Trek series that followed. Like in just two or three minutes, every single episode grabbed you, grabbed you because of just how amazing these teasers were. I mean, they still hold up and they don't make them like they used to. That's for sure. 
You know what's interesting? I said when we very first very first time we began talking about Star Trek, I said how much of my morals came from Star Trek. What I didn't know until really the last few weeks of talking about this with you, I think my understanding of story structure and writing also came from Star Trek. Is there and particularly I was thinking in this episode, there's so many things that show you how to make a good story. For instance, if you had had Scotty on the in the transporter room making a mistake, that would have been bad for his character. It's better having this guy we don't know, and that's a great way to do your exposition is having the character make a mistake and the captain correct him. And this is coming up on another interesting bit of screenwriting, which is that we're on the bridge, we're talking about Tantalus, and Kirk says, I wish I could have met Dr. Adams. Have you ever been to a penal colony since they started following his theories? A cage is a cage, Jim. You're behind the times, Bones. They're more like resort colonies now. And here's the thing. When I, watching it a few days ago, I bumped on this. I went, that doesn't make sense. This should be reversed. McCoy is the more compassionate one. And he's also the one more up on medical procedures and up on psychiatry and up on these things. The conversation should be opposite. It should be uh, Kirk, who doesn't know anything about this stuff, and Bones, who does. And yet, they absolutely make the right choice in terms of screenwriting, and I'm going to get to why that is a little bit later. Tantalus Colony to Enterprise. We are unable to locate one of our inmates. This is a potentially violent case. Back in the transporter room, our crazed man, is he moves out into the corridor. All sections to and someone sees our our crazed guy. You're from engineering. And we're back on the bridge, and Kirk calls down to the colony for Dr. Adams. And we hear this somewhat charming voice say, Terribly sorry, Captain. I take all the blame. Let me repeat. He's clever as well as extremely violent. Take all possible precautions. So the thing about Dr. Adams is he's like one step ahead of the game. He like is almost like apologetic. Like he he knows that the Enterprise is going to have questions for him. And he already has his answers ready to cover his tracks. And the thing that's so great, and we'll see this multiple times, he knows how to be a good liar. If he tried to fake it all or BS his way through this, it would come back to haunt him. But he doesn't do that. He's always polite and he's talking what sounds like really honestly to Kirk. Um, and there's one moment that's interesting, which is that the 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 turbo lift doors open to the bridge and McCoy reacts like it they was something do. scary. Yeah, yeah, and Kirk does too. And this seems like a weird reaction, but what they're actually doing is setting up a moment for later. Right now, well, it's this just, is great. This is yeah. great. I actually I love that scene because they they know that there's an, an intruder on the Enterprise and uh, the door to the uh, the the sliding door to the bridge opens and both Kirk and McCoy turn around in, in, in surprise. And, you know, it's a, a, a quick moment. They, they react very quickly to the door opening. And then they're like, when they see that it's just a security guard, they're like, they look at each other and they took, take a deep breath and they're relieved. And you're right. It is, a, it is a great way to set up what's coming. The earth people glorify organized violence for 40 centuries. But you imprison those who employ it privately. It's a very interesting line. And actually... We're still glorifying violence, you know? Mm, yes, we are. You yeah, that's abso a really good point. And, and, you know, McCoy comes back to him with a, you know, your people found an answer. And, in fact, they did, you know, Vulcans disposed of emotion. So here we have the opportunity 
to use some drama to find out more about our first officer, our science officer, Mr. Spock. And then this is the reason why you have Kirk and McCoy react to the door opening the first time is so when the door opens the second time and crazy Van Gelder steps onto the bridge, it's set up for you. He's like, which one is the captain? Which one is the captain? Like he's he, again, you know, Van Gelder, Morgan Woodworth's performance is so effective. This guy is out of his mind. He is manic. He's completely out of control. Then he says, and then he is struck. He's almost overcome by what seems like intense pain. And that's what's so interesting is I don't think it's not exactly that he's out of control. It's that he is trying to do something and something within his body, within his mind is stopping him, is attacking him. And with all what takes tremendous effort, and this is what's so incredible about this guy's performance, is he gets out his name. Van Gelder. I want asylum. And I think immediately you know something's up. Like you know there's something. It's not just that this is a crazy criminal. Something is going on with him. When he tries to say his name, the pain that he feels in which he says that his name is Van Gelder, like he can barely yep. get it out without feeling an intense amount of pain. And you, the viewer, Feel that pain just as he is feeling it at the same time. 100%. And Kirk looks at Spock and he, and he, like, as a, in a way that he's like sort of uh, motioning Spock to do his thing. <laughs> and Kirk is coming in from one direction and Spock is coming in from the other direction. And you're kind of going, like, which one is going to be the distraction and which one is going to, and, and Van Gelder looks over at Spock and Kirk kicks that phaser out of his hand. I don't quite believe this one, but then Spock comes in with the famous Vulcan nerve pinch. Yes. We, we've now used this a lot since Enemy Within. This has come yeah. out a bunch. The uh, famous Vulcan neck pinch, yes. The FVNP, as they would put it in the script, in their scripts. <laughs> and then we're in sickbay, and McCoy's a bit at a loss because the readings are all over the place, but he can't find any schizophrenia, no tissue damage. There's no condition that he's familiar with. And it took him a triple dose, a triple dose, Scott, of sedatives to put him under. The report said he was quite talkative, but not very informative. Claim one thing, then he seemed to forget, and then he'd start to claim something else. And then McCoy, with a little twinkle in his eye, says, I'd sure I'd like, to, like study. to study this yeah. one, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a weird thing for McCoy to say because, I mean, the guy is yeah. clearly in a lot of pain and McCoy's treating him like a subject yeah. versus a person. But, uh, you know, again, you know, we're still early in the first season mm-hmm. and we're still trying things out. But uh, Woodward in the scene, he's so good. He's so committed. Uh, all the hypos are not helping. He's still very, very agitated. And uh, again, you know, it's a scene like this where I had a hard time watching watching the episode because Woodward is so convincing and effective. Like watching him being so tortured like that, uh, it, it's hard to watch. It's really painful. And I just imagined the audition and that, you know, <laughs> he put he puts everything into this. He uses, every, you know, like this is so you can feel the energy he's using. You can feel the muscles. You can see that sweat is real. I was the director. Oh, oh. Can't, can't quite say get it. 
can't yeah, quite. He can't and say then it. he does. He says, I was the director at the Tantalus colony. And then we hear him say something about er they've erased it, adjusted, subverted me. But I won't forget. And this is where you're going like something is up here. This is not <laughs> something is very serious. Um, and he is fighting to get this message out. And it, it feels like it's almost killing him. And finally, McCoy gives him a shot and he goes unconscious. So we're back on the bridge. Kirk is back on the bridge and he walks over to Spock. Spock is looking at his sensors and I like her kind of like peeks in. He wants to see what Spock's <laughs> looking at. And he goes, what's so fascinating? It's just kind of like a playful moment. An identification tape from our ship's library on Dr. Simon Van Gelder. Dr. Van Gelder? Committed to Tantalus Colony when? Assigned there six months ago as Dr. Adams' associate. So we were getting more information, upping the drama, upping the suspense. And, uh, it, it, you know, this is this is really good writing, I have to say. I agree. And Kirk calls down to Tantalus to talk to Dr. Adams. And this is what I mean about being a good liar. Don't try to deny things that you know they're going to figure out. So the first thing Dr. Adams says is... Is Dr. Van Gelder all right? Is that he's concerned. He doesn't try to deny anything. Dr. Adams is like, again, he's one step ahead of Kirk. He knows the questions that the Enterprise is going to have for him. He's being... Honest to a point, to a point. And Dr. McCoy is listening to this. He'd been doing some experimental work, Captain. Van Gelder felt he hadn't the moral right to expose another man to something he hadn't tried on his own person. Jim, that doesn't quite ring true. Ask Dr. Adams to please stand by. This is why, remember when I said before that for me it would make sense for McCoy to know more about Dr. Adams than it would for Kirk and for McCoy to be more sympathetic than Kirk. And this is why they did it the opposite way is because story-wise for what's supposed to happen now, it, it's much more dramatic for Kirk to trust Dr. Adams and McCoy not to. And so McCoy is, Kirk is kind of going, look, are you aware in the last 20 years, Dr. Adams has done more to humanize the treatment of prisoners than anyone in the last four centuries? I've been to those penal colonies since they've begun following his methods. And they're not cages anymore. And I love that Spock just goes, well, why don't you talk to Dr. Adams about it? Yes. They call him back. And Dr. Adams, again, this is the good liar. Are you passing near any hospital facilities superior to ours? I'd like Van Gelder to have the best possible treatment, of course. It's a good lie. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's again. He's he's knows knows the questions that they're going to have, and he and he already has his answers ready, so that it it diffuses their suspicion. Yep. With his response, because he also knows what McCoy's about to say. There's no superior places around here. Of course, they're going to have to bring Van Gelder back. And McCoy then says, "But that's not the question. If something unusual is going down there." And again, Kirk is not trusting that. He says, an assumption. And this is what I love. McCoy is always the casual guy. He's not the military guy. He doesn't usually treat Kirk as a superior officer. He's not by the book. But he knows the book. And he knows when to use it. And next thing he says is, I'm required to enter any reasonable doubts into my medical law. That requires you to answer in your law. And there's a music sting. And this is the th thought I had at this moment. And I love that he says, sorry, Jim, but he's not going to yeah. back up off on it. And I suddenly went, 
This is the area where McCoy is actually more powerful than Mr. Spock. Spock actually can't do this particular thing to the captain. McCoy can force him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Well, also, this is this is McCoy's. This is his turf. Okay, yeah. this is his area of expertise, and and in some ways, this is where he pulls rank over Spock and even Captain Kirk. And uh, Kirk is going along with it. And the interesting thing is that Adams tells Captain Kirk to beam down with a minimum staff. And again, this is right after What a Little Girl's Made Of, in which Corby told Kirk to beam down alone. So, like, and and because we're going in production order here, after the events of What a Little Girl's Made Of, so they're dealing with another situation with a doctor in which the doctor is saying, beam down with a minimum staff. Maybe his uh, his suspicions should have been, a, been, a, been gone up a little bit, but, you know. <laughs> but, this is, but this is why I'm saying it's so important that they made Kirk the one who knows about Dr. Adams and already trusts him. Because I think that's how they overcome this, is that in his mind, Dr. Adams is like a hero. So because he's uncomfortable saying, I have to investigate you. And of course, the last moment, Kirk agrees, OK, we'll be a minimum staff. So he turns to McCoy and says, find me someone in your department with psych- with skills in psychiatric and penology, which I'd never heard that word before. And <laughs> there's a little reaction from McCoy. And he says, yes, sir. And the music that plays is playful and romantic, which, of course, is foreshadowing of who we're going to see that expert is. And that oh, yeah. is the end of Act One. So we start Act 2. We are now in orbit around planet Tantalus 5, and we are in the transporter room, and we meet the person who was going to accompany Captain Kirk down to the planet. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Dr. Helen Noel, psychiatrist. Dr. Helen Noel, Captain. We've met. And wow, I have to say that after all these years... Mariana Hill is absolutely one of the prettiest women to ever grace the Starship Enterprise. So there's several things about her. So I think she's great. And I totally should agree. She's a beautiful woman. I love the way she plays this whole thing. This is there's several areas of this episode where I totally like the episode. And I also go, oh, hold on. This doesn't this doesn't quite ring right to me. So the first one is, is that in the previous scene, McCoy tells Kirk, yes, I found someone to work with you. It's Dr. Noel. Kirk doesn't remember her name. Thank like- you. I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking the same thing. First of all. OK, so. So, OK, well, first, let's let's let's, you know, Helen Noel played by Marianna Hill, who. Uh, an amazing character actor, worked steadily for many, many, many years. Uh, she was on TV's The Tall Man, 77 Sunset Strip, and Batman, and she was in Clint Eastwood's High Plains oh. Drifter. So this is the story. Before we get into like your conundrum, because <laughs> I agree with you 100%. So originally, the earlier versions of the screenplay, of the story, the part of Helen Noel in the script, it was Yeoman Janice Rant. So for everyone who knows where this episode is going to go, the fact that you have Rand going with Captain Kirk to the planet and having that moment later on talking about the Christmas party, 
wishing it had gone a different way, playing into Yeoman Rand's love of Captain Kirk. I mean, this would have been such a great episode for Grace Lee Whitney, such a great episode to further along the romance of Kirk and Rand. So what happened was, unfortunately, by the time this episode was going into pre-production, Grace Lee Whitney was already on the verge of leaving Star Trek. As for the reasons why, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to just various producers, they'll tell you that we wrote Rand out of Star Trek because we didn't want Kirk to be distracted. We wanted him to have the freedom to pursue a romance with someone on a later episode. If you talk to Robert H. Justman, who was the associate producer in charge of matching the budget with the screenplay, he felt like, well, if we use Rand, we have to pay her more than if we use a guest star. And, you know, money was, the buck stopped, the buck stopped with Robert H. Justman. If you talk to Grace Lee Whitney, she was leaving because she had a, an experience of sexual harassment from an unnamed producer of Star Trek. And when the advances were not reciprocated, she was written off the show. I tend to believe Grace Lee Whitney's word over anyone else's here, of course. But so, Helen Noel is, is still, a, it's still a great character. But I think the episode would have had more significance if, of course, Rand played that role. So I obviously don't know anything and you know more than me about this situation because it's also but it's also possible that all of those things are true. They were concerned about money. There was thoughts about, well, do we really want Kirk to be with this one woman or do we want to be able to bring in another woman? And certainly it's possible and extremely likely that she was sexually harassed. And and these things are very complicated. And I actually and I try to imagine the Star Trek series in which Yeoman Rand stayed and I really like the relate what we've seen in their relationship so far but I love Star Trek you know so I love where it went yeah that's a good point that's a good point like like what if you had gotten to an episode like sitting on the edge of forever exactly that's and, a perfect and, example you know he goes back in time meets the love of his life and you know, maybe Yeoman Rand was on the other side yeah. of the Guardian waiting for him to come back, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think it gives you more freedom. Although I think everything they did with Yeoman Rand up to this point is great. So we get to the transporter room and there in front of Kirk is Dr. Noel and he has an immediate reaction. I love, by, by the way, always look at Leonard Nimoy's reaction shots. They're all hilarious. He has the best ability to smile and mock without doing, without smiling. You know, it is such a, per, he's the perfect reaction shot for this stuff. And she says, Don't you remember the science lab Christmas party? Yes, I remember. And first of all, Dr. Noel from the Christmas party, that is some, that's like an unobtainium level of dumb writing in my opinion. Well, 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 like, like I said at the beginning of when we were recording this episode of Enterprise Incidents, there were a lot of references written in on the part of the, uh, of the screenwriter. And this was one of them. He deliberately named the character Noel because of the uh, because of, because of the Christmas party. That, now that, that is that is that is exactly the wrong kind of reference to make. Tantalus 
and some of the other references that we'll get to later in Dagger of the Mind, they add to the story. Mm. Dr. Noel from The Christmas Party is a joke. And it's, it's, yeah, I you agree. Know I mean? like, and like, a, you know what else is a joke, Steve? Like, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I know there's 428 people in the Enterprise. He would know her. He would know her. Yeah. So when he said, when McCoy told him on the bridge that we actually do have someone who's qualified, uh, Dr. Noel, she's standing by in the transporter room now. Uh, he should have been, he should have immediately, I mean, how many people on the Enterprise are named Noel? And like when he saw her on the transporter platform, like, like how could he be that surprised that she was on the Enterprise? You know, that there was something, uh, something was missing there. And, and obviously you caught it too. Yeah. But what is good, what is good, and again, this is where how good screenwriting works, is that it's not just the main plot, but we have these other threads. We have the, McCoy and Kirk conflict over Dr. Adams. And now we've had sexual tension between there's something that happened at that Christmas party. I don't know what it was, but Kirk is embarrassed and uncomfortable about the whole thing. And she is kind of light and flirty about the whole thing. And that's adding another little bit of tension before we beam down to the planet. And um, we beam down to the planet. That is an interesting map painting there in front of. Oh, the map painting there in front of looks a whole lot like Delta Vega from where No Man Has Gone Before. They did a little touch-up on that map painting to make it look not exactly the same. Like I think they took out some of the uh, taller uh, structures in the uh, Delta Vega painting. But uh, yep, you're a good eye. And uh, if you're watching the remastered version, it looks like a very, very different uh, 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 image that they beamed down to. On Tantalus mm. Five, mm. Um, and she's still being flirty. Wants him to call her Helen. He refuses. We go into an elevator, which drops very suddenly, and they just grab onto each other, which I think is also silly. Um, oh, by, by the way, he by the way he grabs onto her more yeah. than she grabs onto him. I don't. It doesn't. I don't believe Kirk doing that. Um, <laughs> and now we get to meet Doctor Adams. Hello, Captain Kirk. Doctor Adams, played by James Gregory. And if you thought that Morgan Woodward was a, an established journeyman character actor who never stopped working, well, James Greg- Gregory really takes the cake. Yeah. He was on TV's The Lawless Years. Also, Bonanza, Rawhide, Gunsmoke, like, like everybody else was back in the day. He was on The Lieutenant, which was the show that Roddenberry produced. Also shows like The Big Valley, The Virginian, and That Girl. He played – General Ursus in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh, wow. Which, oh, right. by the way. I, now I'm hearing the voice. Yes, of course it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only good human is a dead human. And I have to say, the Beneath the Planet of the Apes, the second movie, that is a bonkers, far out, crazy <laughs> movie with the uh, weird the masks humans. and, yeah, oh, and my God. worshiping a nuclear bomb and, yeah. And then Charlton Heston destroys the planet and they still figure out how to keep that franchise going. Unbelievable. But uh, James Gregory, probably best known for playing Inspector Frank Luger on Barney Miller. Of course. Of course. And again, he's playing the same line, which is that Kirk offers to give him his phaser. And he goes, no, 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 you can keep it. We trust you. This It's all the nice things he's doing that's making Kirk continue to trust him. Um, and Kirk opens his communicator to make the call. And he makes the same dumb mistake that Lieutenant Berkeley did at the beginning. I don't think you'll be able to get through the security screen, Captain. Just a second. And then in comes this woman, Lethe. 
Lathay, I love my work. Yeah, and she is looking <laughs> vague and dazed and stu- and creepy. And we find out that she came for her rehabilitation and she stayed on as a therapist. By the no, way, I, speaking- I, yeah, I, I would have her as a therapist, sure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Scare the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> and what we find, and, and by the way, we're speaking of Greek references. Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. Mm, there you go. See, that's a really good reference because it doesn't, it's not, it's, it's not overt. It's, not, it's overt. not overt. Before you came here, I was another person, malignant. Hateful. May I ask what crime you committed? Does it matter? That person no longer exists? Part of our cure, if you will, Captain, is to bury the past. Why should a person go on living with unbearable memories if there's no necessity? Well, I feel quite sure that you'd concur with me in that, Doctor. And Dr. Noel agrees. Yes, that's that's what we do. And what's so interesting, the reason I bring it up, that is exactly the opposite of current practice of psychotherapy, is that current practice with psychotherapy is that you that repressing memories is dangerous and leads to patterns that are repeated over and over again. And that what we have to do, and this is why they're using psychotropic drugs and all these things to be able to actually go into the memory. This, for instance, with PTSD, in order to really face it and examine it in order to move past it, not to bury it. Burying it is exactly what we're not trying to do today. But, you know, they figured some other stuff out in a few centuries. and They're doing it in a really different way. They have a toast. May we never find space so vast, planets so cold, heart and mind so empty that, that we cannot fill them with love and warmth. Scott, this Dr. Adams guy seems great. Yeah, he really does seem too good to be true, doesn't he? And that's because <laughs> really he absolutely does. is too good to be true. And so the, the Tantalus colony does kind of seem like a resort, like they're getting a tour and you're seeing like the patients walk around with these like smiles on their faces. Oh, this this place is awesome. And it's just like what Kirk was saying on the bridge, that these these colonies are like resorts now. Then they come across a room. And there's this technician standing there, again, like Lefe, looking kind of zoned out and spacey. I was afraid you'd ask about this, Captain. One doesn't like to talk about their personal failures, you know. So it's just an experiment that went wrong, I'm afraid. I think the episode works well. And I think the more you think about it, the less well it works. And so my advice is maybe don't think about it too much. Because <laughs> where I go like, well, what is Adams trying to do? Like, what is happening? What has he been doing? All these are all the was he was he a good penal colony guy? And that's what Kirk visited before. And now he's turned bad. And if so, why is he turned bad? What is he trying to do with the chair? And why does he let Kirk see the chair? And why is there a technician run running something on the chair? And is there a dude in the chair now? And why does he want Kirk to see? None of this makes sense. It really doesn't. And it's like so moment to moment, I think it totally works. But when you step back a little bit, it's like, wait. What is actually going on here? And I literally have no idea. But what we find out is that this is a thing called a neuro neutralizer. You know, he calls it an experiment that went wrong. And yet Dr. Noel also seems to know about this technology. And as Kirk is becoming more suspicious, just as there was a McCoy not trusting Kirk, more trusting thing. Now we take it to the next level, which is Dr. Noel is even more trusting of Dr. Adams than Kirk. And what's good about that in terms of screenwriting is we continue to have conflict and that helps us get our exposition out. May I see it? Uh, Captain, if something hasn't worked out and therefore has no science, Shall we leave it up to the doctor? Since you brought me down here for advice, Captain... One of the advantages of being a captain 
doctor is being able to ask for advice without necessarily having to take it. Yeah, he's acting all cocky, yeah. but he should have listened. <laughs> yeah. We cut back to sickbay, and now we hear this strange word, same word coming from Van Gelder, a neuro-neutralizer. I actually like the way that's cut. Yeah, me too. Like here, you are seeing Kirk being introduced to the neuro-neutralizer, which is being downplayed by Dr. Adams. And at that same moment, you're back on the Enterprise on sickbay in which Van Gelder is struggling to talk about the neural neutralizer. So clearly this is the the MacGuffin of the episode. It's interesting you say MacGuffin. I know that I said before uh, this idea from mostly from Hitchcock, which is, is the audience in front of, with, or behind the characters. And the way they've set this up, and particularly because there's this force field that means that Spock cannot communicate with Kirk, is that we know, because we're seeing Spock and Van Gelder, that something really bad is up. But Kirk doesn't know that information, and Spock can't tell him because the force field is up. This room, what happens there? A neural neutralizer. Experimental. Actually, we don't expect to get much use out of it at all. And what he says is basically the beam neutralizes brain waves. It relaxes the brain. What's interesting about this, do you know about transcranial magnetic stimulation? No, but you're going to tell me, aren't you? I am. So this is a technology that's fairly recent. And what they figured out, because there's part of the way our brains work is electrically, is that you can hit a brain with uh, basically a magnetic field. You put it on. This is real technology. This is not science fiction. And it has an effect on the brain. And first it was used uh, to help with migraines. It also helps with depression because it's mood altering. They've used it with schizophrenia. But then what they started to figure out is depending on which parts of the brain they stimulate, they can cause people to hallucinate. So one of the things that's really interesting, there's some people that are kind of born with a feeling of religion, a feeling that there is a spiritual universe, a feeling that there's some connection between humans, is they can take this machine and they could stimulate one part of my brain. I'm an atheist and I would feel that way temporarily, a sudden sensation that there's connections throughout the universe and a spiritual world. They can stimulate other places and change your mood. They can stimulate other places and do other things. And so even though this technology was invented way after this show, in some ways, this is exactly where we are now in starting to figure out how the brain works and that we can actually change what you're thinking temporarily with this machine. One question, Doctor, if it doesn't do any good. Why do we go on using it, hmm, Captain? Hope. Tranquilizers are fine, Captain, but to continually pump chemicals into a person's bloodstream. Exactly my point, Helen. And this is the thing. This is where, again, if you think about it, wait, we just heard that Dr. Adams created this revolution in penal colonies. We're saying they're more like resorts, but Dr. Wells says if you continue to pump tranquilizers, it's like, wait, are you just tranquilizing everybody? Like, what is Dr. Adams' revolution? What is the current state of the penal system? And this, none of this quite makes sense. <laughs> Captain, you remind me of the, the ancient skeptic who demanded of the wise old sage to be taught all the world's wisdom while standing on one foot. So we've had Shakespearean references, Greek mythology references, and this is a Talmudic reference. This is an ancient Jewish 
story, and this is the story, is Rabbi Hillel is a very famous uh, Talmudic scholar in Jewish tradition, and there was a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. And so he would go, this is what Dr. Adams is talking about, he would go to the great scholars, the great rabbis, and says, I will convert to Judaism if you could explain the Torah while standing on one foot. And mm. the first rabbi said, no, I can't do that. And he goes to the second rabbi. And the second rabbi says, no, I can't do that. And he goes to Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel stands up, lifts one leg in the air, and says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation of this. Go and study it. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's heavy stuff, my friend. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I, I, I looked at is that the writer, Simon Winchelberg, yep. mm -hmm. he's, his family fled Germany in the Holocaust. He, oh, they fled wow. in the, he was born in, I think, 1930 in Germany, and his family fled in the late 30s. Kirka says thank you to the guy as he's walking away, and he doesn't look at him. He nope. doesn't say, oh, you're welcome. It's just he keeps staring straight ahead. That, I mean, you know, Kirk should have been a little more suspicious by this point. And as we leave, that zoned out technician turns the knob on the neural neutralizer and we see a reaction of the guy in the chair. And he says, You will forget all you have heard to remember any portion of it to cause you pain, terrible pain, growing more terrible as you fight to remember. That moment of you will forget everything and it'll cause you pain if you try to remember it. That's what we're taught. That freaks me out. Yeah, well, that, that's also where we're hearing the sound of the neural neutralizer. And it is, it is ear piercing and it is a really uncomfortable sound to listen to just through the, through the TV. I mean, imagine being the guy in the chair while, while that thing is being used. It's an effective device of torture. When do you plan to beam back up, Captain? I think we'll spend the night here, Mr. Spock. And Van Gelder overhears this and he freaks out. No! No! He is so upset by the prospect of Kirk and Noel staying on the planet, which, why doesn't he be back up to the Enterprise? It doesn't, uh, the, the whole idea of, of ah, we'll stay here. It's like, it's not like you have to drive back. Well, and this is where, like, Kirk, the observer that we've talked about, he watched the weird zoned out people, and he, he should be a little more, he's a little bit suspicious at this point, but he should be a lot more suspicious. Something is clearly very, very wrong, and I feel like there should have been more caution on the part of what Spock and McCoy yeah. on the Enterprise or, or Kirk on the planet to be like, no, we'll come back. We'll, we'll, we'll stay on the Enterprise. Warn you, Captain. Dr. Adam, we're destroyed. Destroy how? Right? Death. Now, the way the Vulcan mine mill came about was this. In the early drafts for Dagger of the Mine, it called for a truth beam to enter Van Gelder's tortured mine. And then Spock would hypnotize him. Hmm. But what happened was NBC Broadcast Standards objected to an on-camera hypnosis because they were afraid of potentially hypnotizing viewers <laughs> at home. I mean, can you think of anything more absurd than that? <laughs> so Gene Roddenberry is the one who came up with the Vulcan mind melt. But I think we can all agree – that it was Leonard Nimoy 
who sold it. 100%. It's one thing if you like he's doing the Vulcan neck pinch. It's just one, one action that has a, an instantaneous reaction. But when you think of all the scenes where Spock performed the Vulcan mind melt, like he created this technique. I mean, it was Roddenberry's idea, but it was Nimoy who executed it. We move together, our minds sharing the same thoughts. And the way he did that set the standard for every other Vulcan who ever performed a Vulcan mind meld on any of the Star Trek shows or movies, including like Sarek in Star Trek III. I mean, I know he was nominated every year for the original series. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Leonard Nimoy. But the what Nimoy did with the Vulcan mind meld is just legendary and one for the books. I think it's so interesting that we've had so many things so far that for a production me- reason, for a budget reason, in this case, for a concern about the health of the audience reason, <laughs> that they invented something that's so much better. And while I do give agree 100% to give all this credit to Nimoy, we also have to credit Roddenberry for the concept. And we have to rec- credit the director for how it was filmed. And particularly, this is a really interesting one because the angles that they're choosing, as Nimoy is moving around the body and around the head, it is, uh-huh. And this is a wild idea. And the other thing that I find so interesting is that it sets up a thing that's really counterintuitive, which is we introduce this group of this race that's super logical, super emotionless. And then because I think of the Vulcan mind meld, we pair with them this spirituality. I think the Vulcan mind meld affects the design of the planet Vulcan, you know, 30 years later in, in the movies. The idea that this is both a extremely logical, scientific bunch of people who has this crazy, spiritual, ritualized, almost mystical side. That is totally interesting. And it all goes from we don't want to hypnotize the audience. <laughs> like, that's amazing. And you know what? They're doing the same thing here that they did in the previous thing of cutting back and forth between the Enterprise and the planet. And now we're cutting from the Enterprise where the mind melt is going on back to Tantalus, where Kirk enters Noelle's quarters. And, and she, again, is defending Dr. Adams. Captain, if you're questioning the methods of a man like Tristan Adams... I'd like to see that treatment room again. You say you're somewhat familiar with the theory behind it. And now we come back to Spock, who's they fully melded into the Vulcan mind meld. Dr. Adams, what did he do to us? Not what he did to you, but they, their minds have become one. This is also a testament to the performance of Morgan Woodward, who, after just going to 11, so to speak, with such an intense performance, is now calm and collected. You find out more about the neural neutralizer, the torture inflicted upon Van Gelder. Our minds so blank, so open, that any thought he placed there became our thoughts. Our minds so empty... Like a sponge, needing thoughts, begging, empty. What What's so interesting is that the, the kind of torture is that it's the torture of emptiness, is that your mind becomes so desperate for something to fill it. 
and that you would endure anything. And you watch Nimoy. Nimoy is getting emotional. The emotions of Van Gelder are going into him. And here is the new thought that I had. You know how I said I've been thinking about this show in terms of, well, what if this is character development? What if things from the enemy of who then in the naked time are affecting Kirk going on? What if things from naked time affect Nimoy? And I went, wait, Spock has spent his life trying to hold down his human emotions. Some of that came out in naked time. The Vulcan mind melt has never been used on a human. It's a hidden personal thing to the Vulcan people, part of our private lives. Now he joins minds with someone in an intense, amplified, emotional state. Does that have an effect on Spock going forward? Because what we're going to see in the course of, you know, decades of Star Trek is the really the unification of the human half and the Vulcan half with Spock, him coming to deal with that side. And I went, oh, He's probably experiencing something right now that he hasn't really experienced. And maybe the first time with a human is actually changing him. Oh, that's a good point. He still has his human side that he's suppressing. Yeah. So he is reacting during this mind meld with emotion. And he's also reacting to the prospect that of the loneliness, of, of the emptiness. Yeah. And that loneliness and emptiness is something that comes back later, much later in this episode. Sure. We're back in the control room with the neuro neutralizer. And again, I think this is a really good scene. I think this is really dumb. Like, okay, this yeah. is the machine that that messed up Van Gelder. You don't you only kind of know the theory of it, and I'm gonna get in the chair and let you do it to me when you don't know how to run this machine. That is, well, is a bad plan. <laughs> well, not only is it a bad plan as it was finally executed. Yeah. But the original plan, oh. like I said, was that Yeoman Rand oh. was going to be the one who accompanied Captain Kirk to the planet. So can you imagine if, if you're if you're scrutinizing this moment with a, a doctor, doctor yeah. Noel, can you imagine how it would have looked for Yeoman Rand to operate those controls? Yeah. We'll try minimum intensity. A second or two. She turns it on. Turns it off. Anytime you're ready, Doctor, just for a second or two. We just did it. We just did it, yeah. <laughs> and then we go, let's try a small suggestion. And we turn it on, and she says, you're hungry. Turn it off. You know, when we finally get through this, I'd like to locate and raid a kitchen somewhere. I put that suggestion in your mind, Captain. So I thought it was a dumb plan before. At this point, they should be going, oh, man, I don't know what Dr. Adams was talking about, but this thing is really powerful. We better be real respectful of it. No, let's do it again. So when Noel decides to reimagine their meeting at the Christmas party. I suggest now that it happened in a different way. You swept me off my feet and carried me to your cabin. So imagine that scene, how that scene would have played out if it was, in fact, Yeoman Rand. Imagining this romantic encounter after the Christmas party on the Enterprise. It would have made the episode resonate more because, again, it would have deepened the relationship between Kirk and Rand. What? It's, a, it's an interesting scene, well, I guess. Well, we got to talk about this because this is really weird. And it's even weirder with Yeoman Rand. So we have this character who's been flirty with her boss this whole time. And he's kind of been saying, let's just do business. You know, call me. You know, I'm not calling you Helen. We were here to do a job. And she continues to be a little flirty, a little flirty. And then she inserts into his brain the memory of a romantic encounter with her. That is um, messed up 
to say the least. I mean, imagine <laughs> yeah. if the, the genders were reversed and this was a dude putting an image of a hookup with some woman into her brain. You would go, whoa, that's really that's weird. And then the dialogue in the actual fantasy is weird, too, because she says to him as he carries her into this room and the soft focus and all the romantic you know, music and lighting, she, she says, of course, it would be different if you cared for me. And Kirk says, you want me to manufacture a lie? And she says, no, I prefer honesty. So now this is the fantasy that she is creating, right? So what she's saying is, I don't care if you care for me. The fantasy I want is that you not caring for me, sweep me off my feet and take me Mm -hmm. and we obviously have sex. You know, like that is a weird thing to insert into a dude's brain. That's and if it had been Yeoman Rand. That is just really – Especially after The Enemy Within. Yeah. No, that where is – Where she almost gets right by you know, the dark Captain Kirk. And then it's going to get even rougher because she gets grabbed and there is Dr. Adams. Now Captain Kirk is going to have a complete demonstration. And he turns that thing up. And I know you as a kid and me as a kid. This is a very upsetting scene. And when Dr. Adams takes over, like all bets are off. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Madly in love with Helen, Captain. You'd lie, cheat, steal for her. Sacrifice your career, your reputation. You must have her or the pain grows worse. Well, in this one, the context is so upsetting because he's being tortured into saying he loves this person. Helen, don't go. I need you, Helen. Why the hell is Dr. Adams implanting this love story in Captain Kirk? Dr. Adams is so smart up to this point what the hell is his plan? How is this going to help his situation? And I cannot figure out why it makes sense, but it's totally dramatic in the scene. And after planting this love story in him, he tells Kirk to drop his phaser on the ground, which he does. And now your community. Drop it on the floor. And Kirk brings it up and he opens it. And you could see him fighting. And he says, Kirk to Enterprise. And then... He turns it all the way up. And the pain is just excruciating. And Kirk is trying to fight the device and fight the pain. And he says, Kirk, do enterprise. This moment, he ends this scene staring at the light, writhing in pain, crying. It is disturbing and upsetting to see our captain in such searing pain. What other episode have you seen Kirk writhe in pain for such an extended period of time Hmm. and be so helpless? The only other episode I can think of that actually is even more disturbing than this one is Plato's Stepchildren. That one's terrible. I mean, that there, there, I was going like, well, there's some in the world is hollow and I've touched the sky. There's some in, I mean, there's a lot of Kirk writhing in pain. There's some in Spock's brain. But not like this. No. This scene, it's hard to watch. It's not an episode that I could sit back and watch and just, you know, chill out and relax. This episode makes me anxious. Um, but that moment is the end of the act. And now we've moved into act four and we're back in their quarters and Kirk wakes up and sees Dr. Noel and says, Helen. Years I've loved you. He snaps out of this pretty quick. Dr. Adams took the controls away from me. Remember? I remember. And he's now having to do what 
Dr. Van Gelder had to do, which is overcome this incredibly painful conditioning from the neuroneutralizer. And do you know why I think now think he has the strength of will to overcome this? Well, I think, and this is something that we've seen played out in, in a later episode, is that ultimately his love for the enterprise trumps the feeling of despair that the neural neutralizer had on him. Like he was so driven by his command that he sees like the air conditioning vent and it kind of snaps him out of it. And of course, I totally agree. But now because of this idea of, well, thinking about it in continuity, which of course they didn't think about at the time, but he kept the two halves of Kirk together and the enemy within. And that gave him the strength to overcome what was happening to him in the naked time. And he now has also had an android body made out of him. And in the midst of all of that, he was able to plant, you know, mind your own business, Mr. Spock, into his head. Like this guy, Kirk has been through a lot of stuff. I mean, this is some terrible, terrible stuff. And now he's endured this mind control torture. And I love the way they stage it is that it looks like he is coming at Dr. Noel, that he is going to embrace her, he's going to kiss her, and he looks kind of almost animalistic and intense. But in fact, he's going to that vent to send her off. He basically says, Have you had any training in hyperpower circuits? No. Mega voltage. Touch the wrong line and you're dead. And she goes in. And here's the thought I had. He just sent the woman he loves off to die. That's a, oh. you know what I mean? He, he sent a person with no training to a place where she could easily die. And this is, at this moment, a woman he is passionately, painfully in love with. That is a command decision right there. Yep. And in come our bad guys. And Kirk steps up and almost cheerfully says, Time for another treatment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're back in with the neural neutralizer. So gratifying. I'm so fortunate to have had a couple of excellent specimens to to work with. I've learned a great deal. What do you think of Dr. Adams at this point? I think that it is another case of absolute power corrupting Mm. absolutely. That he is playing God on this penal colony. This device is his power that he has over everybody. And it has clearly clouded his judgment and the power has gotten to his head. You want to know what it this moment reminded me of? This it's nice gratifying to have such a great subject. It reminded me of The Princess Bride, Count Rugen in The Bit of Despair. I've just sucked one year of your life away. Tell me. And remember, this is for posterity, so be honest. How do you feel? It's that same sort of I am obsessed with torturing people. And this is where I kind of go, is this Dr. Adams's motivation? Is his motivation that he is like the psychopathic scientist who wants the test subjects and is perfectly willing to do any kind of crazy torture on them in order to learn stuff? Is that what Dr. Adams is about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If that's the case, that makes that line that McCoy says when I'd really like to get a chance to study this one feel even weirder. Woman doctor. She's gone, Dr. Adams. Where is she, Captain? I... And now the torture takes on a much more intense level because it's to find out where is Dr. Noel. And Kirk gets up 
out of the chair, is trying to actually fight and falls down. It's a powerful scene, and he actually fought so hard to resist that it made him pass out. Emergency channel D. It's no good, Mr. Spock. I can't break through their force field. Keep trying. And now we have Helen. She's reached this control room or whatever it is. Uh, We see a danger sign on a box, so naturally she opens it up, looks for the (laughs) biggest switch she can find, and pulls the switch. And, of course, at this moment, the neuro neutralizer goes off. They grab Kirk because they're going to put him back in the chair. And Kirk... What does he always do? He acts a little bit weaker than he always is. We saw Dark Kirk do this in Enemy Within. We saw Kirk do this just in our last episode with what little girls are made of. If Kirk is acting weak, give him some space. But they don't. He takes out one guy. He knocks Adams out. In comes a security guy towards Dr. Noel with a phaser. He's got interesting symbols on his overalls. That's the symbol that the uh, the doctor had on his uniform in Whom Gods Destroy. Oh, interesting. Grabs her, throws her away. She goes down on the ground. She brings up her feet, kicks him into some electrical equipment, which goes nuts. This must have been the mega voltage that Kirk was warning about. Mr. Spock, the force field is gone. I can send you right to the source of the interruption. Get some security people and follow me down. So Spock beams down, eliminates the force field, but then Spock turns the power back on. Dr. Adams is lying on the floor. Adams is under the spell, under the power of the new neutralizer. He winds up being destroyed by the very same device that he created. Noel comes out of the ducting right into Captain Kirk's arms, who says, Darling, are you all right? Yes and kisses her with this passionate kiss, which she returns a little before saying, this isn't right, Captain. And of course, at this moment, in the midst of this embrace, who should come in the door but Mr. Spock? Mr. Spock. (laughs) Another just hilarious look from him. And then they run back to the treatment room. Kirk turns off the neural neutralizer. McCoy is now there and says, he's dead, Captain. The machine wasn't high enough to kill. And Kirk, who has experienced it, who knows what this is like, says, But he was alone. Can you imagine the mind emptied by that thing? Without even a tormentor for company. That's a great line. Yeah, yeah. We're back on the bridge of the Enterprise, and Kirk walks in, and he's clearly a little... Uh, you know, Shook, been affected yeah. by his uh, shaken up. Yeah, shaken up is a best way to describe it. From Van Gelder. He thought you'd like to know the treatment room had been dismantled, the equipment destroyed. You know, this is another episode that ends on a downbeat note. Yeah, this is a weird moment, and I watched it a couple of times. It's hard to believe that a man could die of loneliness. And Kirk, with a lot of weight on him, says, Not when you've sat in that room. And there's a look from Spock, and Kirk looks at Spock, and then he smiles in this Kirkish sort of way. Take us out of orbit, Mr. Spock. And Spock, in his, as much as he does, smiles back at Kirk. And I think his thought is, oh, good, my friend's okay. Kirk is back. He's Kirk. That's fine. And if Mm -hmm. you watch the final shot of William Shatner in this moment, you can see, I believe, that that smile was fake. He's not okay. Oh, I agree. He is Uh, not okay. And what it was, I think about is like, 
they didn't repair anything. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think they erased his love for Helen Noel. I think he has compartmentalized what happened to him. He's buried it. He's going to be the captain, but I don't think he's okay. That's my feeling. I agree. I mean, you don't go through an experience like that and just, uh, you know, shake it off. It's going to take some time. Could it be fake? I think it's open to interpretation, of but I, I like your I like your reasoning. So, Scott, what were the reactions to this episode? Well, the reactions were interesting. I mean, like I said, Morgan Woodward uh, was quoted as saying, my mind was made a vacuum by that neural neutralizer and I never recovered hmm. uh, because of just how, how much that episode took out of him. Grace Lee Whitney had a very interesting quote. She said, the hardest thing was to watch somebody else say my lines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that must have been very, very difficult. But Vincent McAvity, who directed the episode, had these parting words to say about the dagger of the mind. And I quote, I don't remember liking that episode a hell of a lot. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you know what? When you've directed an episode like uh, Balance of Terror, who can blame you for not not liking the very next episode that you made? I mean, I mean, look, I, I, this episode is like what a little girl's made of. It's an episode that I, I like it. I appreciate it. I think it has its strengths. It's still a, a, it's a very good episode, and a very good episode from the first season of Star Trek is better than most other episodes of other TV shows in their entire run. And I think that it does hold up. It is an episode that still is very, very effective. The fact that it still is a hard episode to watch because of the intensity of the performances speaks to its strengths and just how well acted it really, really is. And I think it just is a really well done, very well acted episode, and it does hold up. How about you? I think in studying this again, the things that are good about this episode got better. Van Gelder's performance, Shatner's performance, a lot of the way it was written, a lot of the ideas behind it, some of the ideas about the brain, the ideas of being tortured, the torture being emptiness, the idea of not, I would want even a tormentor there to keep me company, the idea of planting memories, all of those things I think are really interesting. And I think that when you think about like, what the hell was Dr. Adams trying to do? Noel planting that romantic memory and the, and of course the Janice Rand stuff, like the more I kind of in the big picture, I don't think it's that great in the moment to moment. I think it's really great. I think it's totally, oh, yeah, I think it's a totally enjoyable episode. I think it's dealing with stuff that wasn't being dealt with in 1966. I think of the batting average in our first many episodes of Star Trek is super high. And I, I agree and, completely. I, and I put this one with what little girls, what are little girls made of in man trap? And this one seem, you know, lots of good stuff. I like this better than Man Trap, by the way. And the only yeah, the only kind of loser so far is still for me, Mud's Women. Mud's Women as a loser is still uh, just by comparison yeah. for these first few episodes, because I think you're right. I think for a series that was still finding its way, for a series that was just doing something that was completely unprecedented for television in 1966, that these episodes were still turning out as good as they were and still are. You know, the budget constraints, but the creative ways that they made the show look so different and unique, a large part of that, again, 
due to the cinematography by Jerry Finneman. And yes, of course, there are so many more great episodes to come. So that's what we think of Dagger of the Mind, but we want to hear what you think, whether this is your hundredth time watching this episode or your very first time. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents on our Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can leave your comments. Please, as Scott said at the beginning of the show, leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you're on an Android phone, you can use Google Play or Spotify. Wherever you get your show, we want you to subscribe to it. You can also contact Enterprise Incidents on Twitter at Enter Incidents, on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. Scott, how would people find you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMans. Please be sure to hit me up on Twitter. Let me know. Let us know what you thought of this episode. So uh, we can respond because we do respond. And Steve, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram on SR Morris One. And if you feel like exploring other movies that ex- that mess with reality, you might want to check out the Cinephiles episodes on Taxi Driver, Fight Club, Vertigo, Inception. Or if you just want an old-fashioned jailbreak, we have a two-part exploration of one of the greatest jailbreak movies of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. But Scott, uh, I thought you were going to say uh, Escape from Alcatraz. We haven't done that one yet. And we haven't done The Great Escape is another one we've been talking about doing. Um, but Scott, they're not talking about classic movies here. What is coming up next for the crew of the Enterprise? Well, Steve, I got to say this. If you thought that if you thought that Mud's Women was your least favorite <laughs> episode so far, you might be topped uh, with the next episode. Uh, not one of my favorites, one that does have its merits. Very, very interesting episode. Uh, This one features another Earth. Another Earth. What can only mean that the next episode we are going to tackle, do our deep dive on, is Miri. Miri is the next episode of Enterprise Incident. Steve, what do you think about that? Um, I know I'm going to love the conversation I have with you about Miri probably more than I love Miri. (laughs) Well, I feel the same exact way. So be sure to join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents for a very engaging, exciting, and fun conversation about Miri. And until then, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.